Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Cory Doctorow is in the business of the future. He co-founded a tech startup in 1999. He's been an activist fighting for our digital rights before most people even knew what that was. As an editor of Boing Boing, he was an early blogger and a wildly successful blogger. And his best-selling novels and essays are all about the future. But Cory Doctorow keeps getting the future wrong. Cory thought that Facebook would never last. He was wrong. Cory Doctorow thought that the way that you'd make money on the internet would be by sharing information, not by controlling it. He was wrong. Cory Doctorow thought that the internet could usher in a golden age of human creative expression where permissionless innovation and radical collaboration would lay waste to the corporate gatekeepers who control distribution. But all that we've kind of done is replace three TV networks with five tech giants. Look, Cory Doctorow is one of the most ferociously smart people I have ever met. The way that he thinks about the internet is dizzying. And the things that he did get wrong, well, they were as much an expression of what he hoped was going to happen, what should have happened, as they were his predictions about what was going to happen. And he still has hope. Corey was back in town recently, promoting his terrific new novel, Radicalized, and visiting his family here in Toronto. He's a friend of mine and a supporter of Canada Land from the start, and I was very happy that he found the time to come in and talk with me about why he is still hopeful about the future of the internet and the future of the media and how we can save it all from where it's going. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Abel Savard, Joseph Cooper, Catherine Burrell, Dylan Tisdale, Ryan Feely, Andrew Gray, Julian Dolce, and Matthew Higginson. Hi, my name is Matthew. I'm a cinematographer in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because you guys break stories that other people are slow to. You have important conversations, even if they get a little bit awkward, and Jesse's not afraid to call bullshit even if it means sometimes he gets called on his own. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're, chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Once again, it's better 
com slash Canada Land. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hey, Corey. Hi, Jesse. We used to have conversations all the time about the relationship, the tortured relationships between creators and audiences and all of the evil middlemen yeah. who get in the way and put locks on things and want most of the money. And this early promise of the internet to destroy those middlemen. Yeah. I think back on those conversations and I listen back on those conversations and they seem embarrassingly idealistic to me at this mm. point. Hmm. We're get, getting towards the 20th anniversary of the of Napster. Right. That early promise that we would do away with the middlemen, we had the technology to do it. Yeah. We haven't done it. Here's what I think happened in 1979. The Apple II Plus came out uh -huh. and Ronald Reagan got elected. And over 40 years, we have been running the technology experiment at the same time as we've been running the deregulation of monopoly experiment. And that's Reagan, Thatcher, Mulroney, Pinochet, Helmut Kohl. All over the world, we have uh, walked away from the idea that industry shouldn't be allowed to be cornered and that we shouldn't allow horizontal and vertical integration, and that we shouldn't allow firms to grow by acquiring their nascent competitors or their biggest competitors through mergers. And now we have an internet composed of five websites filled with screenshots from the other four. And we have four big record companies and five big studios, which as of yesterday is four big studios. Yeah. And five big publishers, which apparently is going to be four because apparently with Les Moonves leaving CBS, Simon & Schuster is going to end up being part of HarperCollins. And so now you have big tech and big content making meals of creators. And there are people who are partisans for one side or the other, but I don't care which one gets the bigger piece, right? To me, it doesn't matter. If they're going to devour me, like, I don't want to be devoured, right? And so for me, the thing that we need to be attending to today is not copyright per se. It's how regulation interacts in a monopolized world with these monopolized powers and what we can do to create some space for small actors, competition, individual action and, and dignity, and for the power of people to form communities without having those communities commodified or broken up by the decisions of a few oligarchic executives, either on the tech side or the entertainment side. A return to antitrust or br yeah. break them up. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because when you hear big tech talk about it, you know, you have people who are like, oh, big tech exceptionalism is garbage. But the one thing that, that a lot of people seem to buy is big tech's argument that it's like it's global markets and better information and network effects and first mover advantage. And that's what's made big tech so big. 
But that doesn't explain why like big oil is so big and big energy is so big and big train is so big and, you know, all the other industries have become so concentrated. And, you know, first mover advantage and network effects were the business, then we'd all be like searching AltaVista with our Cray computers, right? It sounds to me when people talk about how it's not antitrust, it's it's all this other stuff. It's like a smoker telling you that they don't have cancer because of the cigarettes. It's because of the toxins in their environment. You know, and it follows for me that if you strip away antitrust protection and then you get monopolies, that like as a first approximation, you should blame the lack of antitrust enforcement on your monopolies. What if we blame it on ourselves? I mean, look, I, I owe my living to the internet. Mm-hmm. That early idealistic idea... Mm-hmm that we could do away with the middleman, that we could have this kind of like perfect relationship of a content creator with their audience mm-hmm. is realized in this little happy accident that has happened with, with Canada land and maybe to a wider extent, the podcast industry up until like maybe this year. Mm-hmm. So maybe I have a reason to be idealistic because it's been borne out and I feel great about it, but I feel like a sitting duck because the forces of consolidation and the big streaming services, the platforms have now targeted podcasting and it, it seems like it's going to happen very, very quickly. And I feel like how long can this aberration be allowed to sustain? We could look at that as the inevitable consequence of the rapacious, unending appetite of unfettered capitalism. But I wonder if it's something in the consumer, in the, and I hate even using that word. This is my question to you. And I'm like a, an older and pudgier and more mainstream guy than the guy who used to have conversations with you like 10 years ago. I like Netflix. Mm-hmm. I like it when things are streamlined and packaged for me and presented to me in an easy way. I used to search out the obscure Jarmusch film. Now I'll go and see Bohemian Rhapsody knowing it's going to suck because mm-hmm. I just I just want to like bliss out and know what everybody else is talking about. Do people want to be consumers more than they want to be citizens? I have two ways of answering that. So the first one is that gentrification, which is kind of what you're describing. It's a kind of media gentrification. It's a bit like tuberculosis. So when people first get tuberculosis, they get super romantic. They're like pale and wan. They lose a lot of weight. They kind of swoon around. They they quote Kierkegaard, right? And then they start coughing up blood, right? And then it's kind of, it's all downhill from there. And gentrification, you know, when, when I first moved in at King and Dufferin and lived in a illegal warehouse for 10 years, right? We had like one coffee shop in the neighborhood and then they opened a good coffee shop. So then we had two. And that was amazing, right? Now we had Bohemian Living and a great coffee shop, but now it's a mall. And there is a point beyond which that that convenience of Netflix or that convenience of all those other services is overshadowed by the negative cost. And one of the things that we want out of evidence-based policymakers, regulators who act in accord with best expert advice, is that they look to those longer term consequences. I mean, I also like being able to drink water out of plastic bottles and throw them away when I'm done instead of having to carry them around all day, Mm -hmm. right? But there's kind of a limit to how much of that we can do. The other part of the answer is I think you're making a category error. If there was a tick box on the iPhone that said, let me install software of my choosing instead of just the software that uh, kicks back 30% to Apple, would all of the elegance kind of run out of that tick box, right? If If we put a gate in the walled garden, that allowed you to, for example, have a single tool that consolidated all the different streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, um, you know, the Canadian equivalents and so on, yeah. and, and put them under one search box, 
you know, which is the kind of thing that we used to do all the time on the internet back before terms of service became enforceable against competitors and Facebook and other big firms started to uh, create jurisprudence that made that stuff toxic and unavailable to, to yep. new entrants. Would that make your Netflix existence so much worse? I mean, I think you're not watching Jarmish films because you got two kids and you're and you've got a startup and your brain is like already overstimulated. <laughs> you want to switch off instead of switch on. I yeah. used to be like that too. I also veg out. I veg out with podcasts. I veg out with dumb casual games on my phone and so on because I'm like 47 and tired. But I don't think that like the world is improved by a lack of competition. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, uh, when you think about the open standards of the web itself, the idea we are much better served by having one web, which is the resilience of which is amazing. I mean, podcast too, it's MP3s plus RSS. It's yeah. like very old technology. Totally. That's not capitalism solving anything to have my Amazon Prime video and then my Netflix video and 10 other video apps. Like right. it would be better to have some open standard. Well, I'm not even talking about an open standard, right? I'm talking about adversarial interoperability. Yeah. So like when Facebook started, you may remember there was this string of social networks that popped up and died six degrees and Friendster and so on. When Facebook started, everyone was on MySpace. They had a network problem, which is that everyone you wanted to talk to was on MySpace, even if they had a, a technically superior tool. So they made a MySpace scraper, and you could give it your MySpace login credentials. It would log into MySpace as you, take all your waiting messages, and put them in Facebook. And you could reply to them there. That way you could have one foot in both networks. So then a competitor of Facebook did this called Power Ventures. Mm -hmm. And Facebook used this Reagan-era cybersecurity law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that Ronald Reagan urged the passage of after seeing war games and freaking out. And they use that to go after Power Ventures and put them out of business. So no one can ever do to Facebook what Facebook did to MySpace. Why can't we make a tool that logs into Netflix and all the other networks that you have an account on as you, grabs the video that you want to watch or searches all of them at once, grabs the video you want to watch and pumps it out through whatever screen you're in front of? Why is it that you know we have to wait for these giants to all agree to sit down at the table together and cooperate. We never did that with the web. Yeah. So your argument is essentially that if I'm saying that people just want the convenience, well, it would actually be much more convenient if there was permissionless innovation and we went back to those old standards. But you've been wrong before. Like, I, I remember a column you did for us uh, on Search Engine years ago where you talked about how, you know, everybody got off Friendster because it got filled with your old, like, high school mm. teacher. And then they went to MySpace because that's where the people mm -hmm. you actually wanted to hang out with were. But then that got polluted with all the people you didn't want to talk to. So you went to Facebook and you predicted the demise of Facebook on the same basis, that, that eventually this would just be so laden with people you don't want to communicate with. And it's not about the technology of the social network. It's about that that's the inevitable life of social networks. Mm -hmm. And I totally agreed at the time because I think, you know, you've been involved in online communities from the get-go, and that was always the cycle of life mm -hmm. of an online community. Mm -hmm. And you've got to just find some new space to have a bit of uh, exclusivity so that it's got value. But you were so wrong about Facebook. It did not collapse. But, I mean, you were right. It's actually in incredible for me to remember that there was a time like, oh, yeah, it, it, I used to enjoy Facebook. Mm -hmm. I still go to Facebook, but I don't enjoy it. Right. But somehow they evaded that outcome. Well, but that not somehow, right? Last year, 15 million Americans aged 12 to 34 left Facebook. The majority of them went to Instagram which mm -hmm. is owned by Facebook, mm -hmm. right? Venture capitalists call social network the kill zone because investing in anything that is adjacent to Facebook is a kiss of death because Facebook will just clobber you. People want to socialize and they want to they go from one place to another. And what Facebook has done is cornered the market. You know, so you have this two things going on. One is that all of the people you want to talk to are being held hostage on Facebook and you and they are, are each other's reasons that you're not leaving. Right. And then when it finally gets too much, you end up in another Facebook park. Yeah. 
the only antidote to that is is to is to break them up and not let them just consume and consume and constrain. You're a guy who's very very concerned about public space mm-hmm. in every sense, yeah, physical sure. and and uh, yeah. and and the commons. Right. Do people want to live in the commons? Do people seek out? Do people embrace the privatization of public spaces? Do we prefer to be in the shopping mall than on the park bench because it's it's stranger and and more random and unsafe mm-hmm. and weird? I think we're back to tuberculosis again. We are, and right? I love that your analogy for tuberculosis. Like, as we all know, tuberculosis starts out great, I'm like, right? Oh, all right. Well, I mean, Lord Byron, right? You know, uh, but uh, sure. So, like. When I was a teenager and going to seed school at college and young with with a bunch of other weird, you know, alternative that kids. That was the, yeah, where, where you go bowling for phys ed, is that the? Yeah, that's the one. I graduated without a phys ed credit, though. We all got barred from College Park, like the whole student body and the teachers. I ended up going and testifying at a city meeting about it, and the star put it on page two. And the, the manager uh, of College Park, whose name was Mr. Hassler, which was pretty awesome, came and apologized <laughs> to us. But their security service banned all of us, and not just us. I mean, uh, Olivia Chow very famously went and sat down in the Eaton Center for five minutes wearing track bottoms and a T-shirt and was barred for life five minutes later, even though she'd bought a drink and was sitting there and minding her own business. She did it after her Chinese constituents said, we go into the Eaton Center and we get kicked out again. Malls work well. They just fail badly. And again, like the job of evidence-based policymakers is to look beyond the success and think about graceful failure modes. You could get a much cheaper ticket on a ferry boat if they didn't have to have life jackets. And we would all prefer, as a first approximation, to pay less for our ferry tickets. The job of the evidence-based policymaker is to say, you know, profits be damned, pricing be damned, you need lifeboats and you need you need life jackets because it, what matters is not how well you work, it's how gracefully you fail. You point out that some people have left mm-hmm. Facebook, mm-hmm. but we've had so many reasons to leave Facebook. I mean, every week brings another mm-hmm. bombshell news story about why we should just leave. Mm-hmm. And something keeps me there and I can justify it professionally. That, well, I got, but it's, it's the same justification that everybody uses. I got to be there because everyone's there, no matter, no matter what they do. Like, mm-hmm. where is the level of personal responsibility? Are we, are we just going to say that it's government's job to come in and do something about this? Facebook is already a creature of the state in as much as without limited liability and other privileges that we give to private firms, Facebook could never exist, right? So when we say, well, is it the government's job to decide how Facebook works? We're already coming in in act two, right? Act one was your shareholders will be shielded from your liability as you move fast and break things. How many shareholders would they have had if move fast and break things could have gone after their personal fortunes, Mm -hmm. right? If you could lose your house and your other holdings as a result. We are already in a realm in which Facebook is a creature of regulation. So now we're just arguing about the details. Imagine this future, right? Or imagine this alternate present where all of the laws that let Facebook come into existence were still in existence as Facebook gained its dominance, right? There would be lots of these moments where Facebook would be really hard to live with. In those moments, you would have entrepreneurs and uh, you would have activists who would be either seeking capital or putting their own work into building alternatives to Facebook, but they would be figuring out ways to adversarially interoperate with Facebook. So you didn't have to just choose leave Facebook or stay on Facebook. You could continue to push messages to Facebook, pull in the stuff that mattered to you from Facebook, but do it somewhere else. And Facebook, you know, they enjoy these network effects, this Metcalf's law effect where the value of the network doubles with every person you add to it. The corollary of of Metcalf's law 
is that as people leave the network, the value drops in half, mm -hmm. right? The number of connections you can make falls off precipitously. So Facebook would be subject to all the dynamics that killed MySpace and Friendster and all the other networks that preceded it under normal conditions. Having destroyed us, Facebook is realizing that they need something that mm -hmm. they destroyed. Um, and by us, I mean the news media. They took everything. Uh, they mm -hmm. took the ad market and um, they took just the daily habit of where people go when mm -hmm. they need information every day. That's where we're at. And, and yet Facebook now sees that the thing that they destroyed had something that is like the one thing that they can't mm -hmm. replicate, which is credibility, mm -hmm. which is that people still wake up every morning wanting to know what's going on. And when they go to Facebook to find out what's going on, they're getting toxic, toxic stuff. Sure. Sure. And that toxicity is now threatening Facebook. Mm -hmm. It's uh, threatening to bring in government regulation and antitrust. It's threatening the relationship with the users who are saying, if you are dividing me against my neighbor, if you're filling me with, with bad information, um, there might actually be a point where we see a mass exodus. And so who are they turning back to? And I don't mean to solely target Facebook. I mean, you know, I think that everybody is recognizing that, be it Apple's, you know, Apple News, that what we need to do now is recognize that that, that um, as the main platforms, we can somehow step into this thing that people want. They want to look at something mm -hmm. every day to find out what's going on. And mm -hmm. we need to, to you know, reestablish a relationship with the people who actually can provide good information, and that's news journalists. So now they want this thing, the last thing we have, which is our credibility. Mm -hmm. Should we give it to them? Our policy has always been that we will provide our content for free on any platform where people might read it. Or should we not make the same mistake that we made originally when we gave our content away for free? Should we go somewhere else and build something new? Boy, that's a really tough question. And, you know, it's one that we wrestle with. I also own part interest in a media business, Boing Boing. We've been going for a long time. We're, we're hosted just around the corner from here at 151 Front Street. And so... We are still on Facebook, although I'm not. I'm a Zucker vegan. I don't have accounts on Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram. You know, to the extent that what you're doing is mission-driven and you, you want to create a dialogue about issues you care about, obviously absenting yourself from places where the conversations are going on is, is a tough one. It's a choice that I made personally, mm -hmm. but it's not a choice I could make for my business partners. If it had been up to me, we, we just wouldn't have started. But I can also see the business logic of us having done it. And I think what you're doing ultimately is you're dancing on a razor thin edge of being used and using the platforms. And I think that the thing you need to watch out for is anything where your creative output becomes a mechanism for locking people to the platform. So in other words, if, if you like Canada Land and you can get Canada Land everywhere, then the fact that you're getting it within Apple's walled garden maybe doesn't matter so much because mm -hmm. you could leave Apple's walled garden and get it in Facebook's walled garden or Google's unwalled garden where they don't have to put a wall around you because they can just spy on you wherever you are. They, they don't have to corral you first, you know. Maybe I guess the best parallel in my creative work is that I won't allow my audiobooks on Audible because uh, Amazon, which owns Audible, which controls 90% of the audiobook market, refuses to allow creators to decide whether or not they want DRM on their audiobooks. So everything they sell is locked to Amazon's platform. Mm -hmm. And so for the longest time I was in the wilderness, I just, I was like shelling out of my own pocket to go into a recording studio and pay professional actors, professional rates to read my audiobooks. And then I was selling them on my own and on little minority platforms like Libro.fm and stuff. And now 
uh, that or, or asking friends to do a chapter. That's here. right. You did a chapter that was amazing, and that's a you did a really great reading on that. And, I was fishing, but thank you. Yeah, no, you really did. I was just thinking about that on the way in, and now you know, finally, Google has launched a DRM-free alternative to yeah. Audible. All the same titles at the same prices, and the only difference is that you don't have to stick with Google if you like them. And so I kind of weighed the pluses and minuses, and I said, I'll do a deal with Google. Uh, it only took about 10 years, and of course, the uh, overdue disclosure here is, uh, as people know, Audible is an advertiser on Canada Land. Sure, and I'm not trying to screw you up there. No, that's fine. We yeah. can talk about that. Can we return to, I think that uh, this is all really interesting stuff. What does it have to do with the price of bread? The price of bread being how do how do creators get paid? The the the, sure. the original question yeah. twenty years ago with Napster, how do creators get paid? And has this thing, on the whole, helped or hurt? And and uh, you know, a lot of our conversations originally were about the industry targeting its own fans, consumers, suing music downloaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that you were a optimistic advocate of the idea that this ultimately will create more value mm -hmm. uh, and it will be better for creators and consumers than, than, than bad. And, and no one's going to stop making music and no one's going to stop creating. And that part's borne out, but it's hard to look at the current fights that musicians are having with platforms like Spotify and say that things have gone the right way. Right. Like, yeah. you know, there was a moment, there was a moment where it looked like your point of view was validated by the resurgence of iTunes when iTunes was like, look, rather than fighting your consumers, if you would just, you handed your whole industry over to Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. How do you compete with free? How do you compete with piracy? You give people a song for 99 cents. Right. And the first person to do that on a good platform is going to basically inherit the industry. That happened. And for a moment, it looked like, wow, they should have been doing this all along. Mm-hmm. And now even the idea of like ownership of MP3s and the idea of like a song for a dollar mm -hmm. is an exorbitant, like what, what, what do you, what does an artist get for a, a stream on Spotify? Is it like, uh, it's a fraction of a penny, right? To analyze this without talking about competition is really hard. When you only have four record labels, your ability to get a good deal out of the labels is compromised by the extent to which they all converge on a set of terms that are bad for artists. So for example, a standard record deal still has a line in your royalty statement for a thing called breakage, which reflects the percentage of vinyl record albums bro broken on the truck between the Sam the Record Man and the factory, right? And that's deducted from your digital royalties. And the accounting basis for that is go fuck yourself, right? <laughs> There's only four of us. And if you don't like it, you'll find out that the other three have the same deal. Yeah, Spotify is paying the labels stonking amounts of money, mm -hmm. right? The actual total record industry revenues, inflation adjusted, have more than recovered from the Napster years. You know, obviously, and, and famously, the record industry had a bunch of aberrant income blips, right? The new format CDs and, and, and tapes created these bubbles, right? They weren't aberrations. That was part of the model was getting people to throw out their music collection and buy a whole new one on a new medium. But... Yeah, but it's hard to make an argument that that's a public good, yeah. you know? People... By the time the CD came out, home taping was alive and well. Yeah. And it doesn't help that the record industry is now negotiating with platforms that are also super consolidated and can do to them what they do to artists, right? It's, it's competition problems all the way down. One of the things we need to be really wary of is any kind of solution for artists that strengthens either one of those parties at the expense of artists. So in the European Union right now, there's this copyright directive, which as we speak, there are big parts of the web that are blocked, blacked out in protest of it. And it has this, this um, idea 
that all the platforms will need to implement copyright filters that uh, will do what YouTube Content ID does, but for everything, photos and audio and video and yeah. text and Minecraft skins and everything that can be copyrighted. And, and digitally, the way that YouTube is able to kind of analyze a, right. a piece of video and scour their entire that, that whole that old argument of like we can't find this, it's whack-a-mole. Well, they actually are doing a pretty damn good job because it's got a unique fingerprint and they can just eliminate it from the network. Yes and no. Okay, so if you actually ask Universal Music, oh, what have I done? Okay. How well does Content ID work? Yeah. Except when they're arguing that everyone should have Content ID, they will tell you that Content ID is a terrible failure and that pirates find it easy to get around it because filters are dumb, right? If you're a pirate, you can spend all day transforming a piece of music, adding, you know, changing it in little ways that are largely imperceptible to human ears, but until you find a way that gets past the filter, right? Oh, I've watched the uh, the mirror reversed uh, an upside down Dora the Explorer episode. Sure. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, yeah, there was just, um, I think it was even Citizen Lab here in Toronto that did this research on Tencent's um, uh, image filter, you know, because they have these filters for like knives where you're not supposed to post knives on WeChat. Uh-huh. And if you flip it horizontally, you can post knives on right. WeChat, right? So the filters sort of don't work, but they also, you know, these these tuna nets, they catch a lot of dolphins. So, you yeah. know, famously, there was a woman named Lenz whose toddler was dancing in her kitchen. And in the background were a few seconds of Prince's Let's Go Crazy. And that was blocked by yeah, YouTube. False so positives. It comes and, up all the sure. time, right? And this gets back to the stuff we always talk about, which is when the desire to constrain copyright for commercial purposes gets in the way of people's expression and their own sure. home media. And Yeah. Uh, but there are tons of pianists who can't post their Brahms piano performances because okay. Sony claims yeah. them. So the point being that these filters cost a lot of money. YouTube's already spent $100 million on Content ID. If we say... Everyone who wants to operate a service in Europe has to have one of these. We snuff out the whole European tech sector at the stroke of a pen. We have five big American platforms, and it will transfer a zero or two from their balance sheet to the entertainment industry's balance sheet. You're crazy if you think the entertainment industry is then going to kick that back to artists, right? When was the last time the entertainment industry celebrated a great quarter with an earnings call announcing that instead of giving the money to the shareholders, <laughs> they were raising their royalty rates? But worse is 10 years from now, YouTube, Facebook, Google – all these platforms with no competition, if you think that they're dicks to negotiate with now, give them 10 years yeah. and they're going to be even worse. So the answer, I think, has to be at attacking these root causes and we can do it in parallel. So we can do it with things that address the outcome of the cause and then we can do it by addressing the cause itself. So here in Canada, there's a big debate about improving the reversion right. Uh, Brian Adams has been an excellent champion for this. So the reversion right is a an inalienable right in copyright for an artist to claim back their copyright after a set number of years. So mm -hmm. in the US, for example, it's 35 years. And the artists who are doing really well on digital music platforms are the artists whose music is still viable after 35 years, which is a small fraction of them, who are able to claim back their copyrights from their labels and go direct to the digital platforms and keep 100% of the revenue. Regardless of what their contract said, regardless of the fact that their contract said it was a lifetime contract, they can revert their rights. No matter what, after no matter 35 what, years. You just fill in some paperwork and it's yours. Uh -huh. That's a super powerful anti-oligarchic move, right? It, it gives artists- That's cool, but how does that play well with the, I guess it's 50 years after their death and then it's public domain. You can have both of those things. Yeah, totally. Not mutually exclusive. Totally. Let me be the techno-optimist here. Let me suggest a philosophical fix to this mm -hmm. and let me play the optimist for a second. And it's one that I actually believe and it's evolved because when I began Canada Land, well, when I first began asking for money for Canada Land, I was filled with shame. I really was. Like the idea- Investors or listeners? Listeners. Listeners, yeah. The idea that I would ask you to give money voluntarily- for something that you're getting for free 
and like, please help me or I won't be able to do this, made me feel like a beggar. And you can probably hear it in the first Patreon campaign that mm-hmm. I, I really struggled with it. I mean, like I, I would have done it months sooner, but I was, uh, I was so afraid of doing this. I had um, personalized a lot of ethics, I think, in – capitalism that like Mm -hmm. if, and as a professional broadcaster, Mm -hmm. if I have a product, you can pay me for the product. And if you don't pay me, you don't get it. Were you worried that if you asked people for money that they would try to tell you what to do, that you'd have a million micromanaging dick bosses? No, I was used to having dick bosses and having a million micromanaging dick bosses is a lot easier to deal with than having one or two. That view has really evolved. I've kind of come up with a different conception of the creator listener relationship that I think is applicable to a lot of different media where I've abandoned completely the idea that I make a a product, you know, that I have this thing. I'm not making a CD that you buy and then you covet and you collect and, you know, there's no fetish, you know, relationship. I I actually take some pleasure in the fact that like a podcast is like a utility. That your top tier Patreons don't get one beard hair in an envelope? Well, you know, uh, that's a good idea. (laughs) They can clone you. um, We'll we'll do that and we'll create a tier for that. I mean, you know, the physical object still does. And Uh. that's an interesting thing is that that having some kind of physical manifestation of this thing is is an important part of it. But, you know, it's not why people do it. Um, So then it became like, okay, well, I don't provide a product. I provide a service. Uh And on the most basic level, the ser- you know, the service is people enjoy listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, you can, you can get a little bit more evolved than that. Like, well, yeah, I like, this is a thing in my life that keeps me, you know, entertained or engaged for a half hour to 40 minutes, but I also pay him and his team to perform this service, which is media accountability. Yeah. Okay. And then there's something beyond that. Mm-hmm. where patrons told me at some point, I was playing around with the idea of having, you know, premium content. Like if you, if you pay beyond a certain amount, mm. you get like a, an extra podcast that nobody else gets. Mm-hmm. And I had a significant number of patrons say, if you ever pay Walt any of your mm-hmm. content, I'll stop giving you money. Mm-hmm. And this suggested to me that this isn't anything that I'm doing, that there is a enlightened and evolved new capitalism Hmm. That is that is happening here where part of the service that I provide to people who pay for the show is that for every one person who pays for it, 12, 15 other people get it. And so it's the impact that we have in the conversation that like be it the, that, you know, media criticism or media reporting is something that's important to you or some message that you hear on the show is important to you. You want somebody to represent you out in the world and your funding of the show creates that. It, yeah. it, it has that impact. And that is an exchange. That is a service that we sell. So I don't think that's right. I mean, I think that everything you said was right until the very end. Here's what I think is going on with Canada land. I think that there is an inchoate but crystallizing sense that things have gone terribly wrong. You see it with uh, climate change and you see it with the student strike and you see it with... Um, the in- increased uh, rise of, uh, you know, anti-establishment movements uh, on, on all sides of the political spectrum, that there is a sense that we are living in urgent and difficult times. Yeah. And um, when I listen to Canada Land, I, I know you, you describe it as media criticism, and it is media criticism, but the reason the media criticism matters is in this oligarchic moment of concentration, the media has taken its eye off the ball and... Because of the same phenomenon and as a result of that, the world is getting really scary and dangerous. And when you criticize the media, what what you end up doing is you end up talking about the stories the media are missing. I think that people are funding Canada Land, at least some of them are funding Canada Land. I fund Canada Land 
because I believe in its mission. Because the mission is, uh, to me, part of a survival strategy. And I think that there are people who are funding you because that mission is important to them. They want other people to hear the story you're telling about the moment we live in. I think that we found ourselves in a strange spot where I'm arguing a pro-capitalist perspective that sounds hopelessly idealistic. Right. In the face of a antitrust policy solution that I began this conversation feeling was absolutely Pollyannish on your part. You know, if you're sick, right? Like if you have a disease, the answer to that disease is going to be wonkish, right? There's going to be a bunch of like non-wonkish stuff about keeping your chin up and where, you know, dressing up warm and whatever. But eventually like someone is going to have to look through a microscope and then like figure out what's wrong with you and then synthesize something in a laboratory. And then you're going to have to take it. And like, it will be an ultimately wonkish solution. Technical problems often have highly technical solutions, at least as part of their answer. My feelings don't matter to you, do they? Uh, My warm and fuzzy feelings towards uh, evolved capitalism don't even matter to you. feelings do matter to me, Jesse. That is your Canada Land Show. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. It's an episode of Oppo this week. I think Oppo is the show you want to listen to. We have an election coming up, and you should stay on top of it through the spring, through the summer. Stuff is happening. Check out Oppo. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovic. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you want to support the work that we do here across this podcast network, our news stories. We need your support. We rely on it. And we pay you back by providing ad-free versions of our podcasts if you give us five bucks a month or more. Please help us out at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. 